Seriously? Apologetics? Isn't that that boring, stuffy, nerdy, angry, I'm right, you're wrong, irrelevant stuff that has nothing to do with really following Jesus? Well, if that's what you think, you need to rethink apologetics. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the atheists. Well, if Jesus was just such a nice guy, then why did they crucify him? So the study of apologetics is not just to inform us as followers of Jesus. It does that. But it's to equip us to make a positive presentation of the gospel to non-believers. We aren't just his ant farm. We're not just his pets. He's interested in us. He wants a relationship with us. This is not your normal apologetics conference. But come hang out with us at Rethink and find out for yourself. Check out all the details at RethinkApologetics.com. Good morning, guys. Um, I know Kevin last week uh, began to plug this conference that's coming up April 20th and 21st at uh, Briarwood. It's Rethink Apologetics. And um, I know he gave you a statistic, and I just want to dive into that just a little bit. He said that 80% uh, from Barna Research, 80% of people between the age of 18 and 29 that are churchgoers will abandon their faith. That's 80%. And that's from Barna. That's a very reputable research firm. And I recently there's many many other research firms that are coming up with the same numbers and have been for quite a while and I say that to make you realize it's real you hear a number like 80% and you think well that's somewhere else that that can't be here 80% there's no way but it's real it's happening children are leaving the church in droves in America in our culture and so it's a real issue and I want that to sink in and be a little bit personal for us this morning so there's plenty of people right here in this audience, right now in this congregation that are under the age of 30. As you look around at those faces, if we follow that same pattern, okay, most of those faces are not going to be here very much longer. So that begs two questions for me. I'm immediately, I'm like, well, who? Who's not going to make it? Is it my kids? Is it your kids? Who's, who's going to abandon their faith? Well, I can tell you from the leadership at Grace Community, that our commitment, firm commitment, is by the grace of God, through much teaching, through much prayer, through much service, through much imploring parents, especially fathers, to lead in your home spiritually, that that number be zero. We want zero percent. We want every single child who is at this church, every single young person, to not just not abandon their faith, but to be able to defend their faith, to have firm roots grounded in the love of Christ, that's our goal. But it begs another question, which is, why? If we're going to be different, we say, okay, well, we're going to be different. 80% are not going to leave from our church. Well, how? Why? I just told you what the church is doing and our commitment. So this question is really for the parents and for you, you young people. If you're under the age of 30, you're, you're the at-risk group. So what are you doing differently than other churchgoers your age are doing to make sure that you're not at risk, that you know why you believe what you believe to be true. You know why. You've studied it. You've honored God and worshiped him by intellectually pursuing knowledge of him, his word, and the evidences for why you believe what you believe. That's apologetics, okay? And that's why we're pushing this conference. You're not gonna learn everything you need to know in a day and a half conference, but we hope it sparks your interest. It gets you 
asking the questions you need to be asking, okay? So April 20th, 21st, go to RethinkApologetics.com. You can register online. It's $40 a person to attend. And if you want to attend but you don't have the funds, especially young people, youth, it's geared toward youth and parents, but anybody can attend. If you want to attend but you don't have the funds, we do have some sponsorships uh, available. So we've got a sign-up sheet out back. And if that's you, just sign up so we can gauge interest uh, that way. And I look forward to seeing you guys there. Uh, I'll be plugging this the next few weeks and giving you a lot more information as we go along. But all the information, the, the conference is going to be, uh, it's going to have sessions where you'll have everybody uh, in one room listening to one speaker, and then there'll be breakout sessions where you'll have a bunch of different topics with different speakers, and you can pick and choose which ones you want to hear. But uh, look forward to seeing you there, and uh, let's all make this a part of our lives. Apologetics, guys, it's really important. Thanks. Preach it, B. Right? He's doing just fine. Just tell him to open the word and get on it. All right? We appreciate uh, B and his efforts there in terms of an apologetic conference. It's, it's something that, as you're a student of the word, you know you'll continue um, to be a student the rest of your life. Right? I mean, that's what it's about. You don't ever get to the point where you say, hey, I know, I know it all. <laughs> if you do, let me know, will you? And I'll sit where you are. Uh, the reality is that we have God's Word in front of us. We want to be good students of the Word. And uh, so, uh, as B said, I mean, the next generations, the thing that scares me the most is, is um, that I'm not sure how many will be left standing and uh, standing on the truth. And uh, there's so many things that are being compromised today. And we'll get into some of that uh, later this morning. Um, if you're visiting with us, we're thrilled you're here to be a part of our service today. Uh, we look forward to what the Lord uh, is doing. Obviously, you guys know that it's Palm Sunday, and we celebrate the triumphal entry of our Savior. And as I was thinking about that celebration, you know, that was really the beginning of a celebration for the believer, right? And so you have the week where Christ uh, goes to the cross, and he uh, pays for our sins, and he's buried, and he rises again from the dead. And you know, there's also another celebration, and that's the ascension of Christ. That's not talked about much, but that is a celebration. That Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he sat down. Meaning what? Finished, right? And one day we're going to celebrate when he comes, and he takes his church. And I trust that you're a part of that, that you're in Christ, that you know you belong to him. So... Why don't we uh, pray together and we'll get started. After I pray, we're going to stand and let's welcome one another uh, this morning. We hadn't done that in a while. So let's, let's stand together and let's pray and then we'll welcome one another this morning. And Father, we thank you for the tremendous celebration that um, it is for us as believers to celebrate uh, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I pray that this morning that um, as we sing, as your word is opened, that, um, Lord, you would be honored, and, Lord, that you would be glorified. And I pray that um, right now you would help prepare us for what's ahead this morning. And as we come to the time where we um, take the bread and the cup and remember the death of our Savior, um, I pray, Lord, that, that we would examine ourselves as the Scriptures tell us to do to examine ourselves. Lord, um, we just want to thank you as we do that, Lord, that we know that if we confess our sins, 
um, agree with you that it's sin, you forgive. That's what the word tells us. You're faithful and just to do so. So I pray that we would have that on our minds this morning as we think of uh, our time together today. Thank you for each one that's here. And may all that uh, we do and say glorify you in Christ's name. Good morning, everyone. As we're uh, making our way back to our seats, preparing to worship the Lord this morning. Hope we've come with hearts that are focused on Him. It is all because of Jesus that we're here. It's all from Him, through Him, by Him, to Him. So let's sing this. Giver of every breath I have breathed, author of all eternity, giver of every perfect thing, to you be the glory. Maker of heaven.
justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations bring about perseverance, and perseverance proven character and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Father, we come to you and we just thank you so much that every word that we just read is true. That you love us even while we were sinners. You died for us. Lord, we thank you so much that we, um, that we will be with you for an eternity. Not experiencing the bad parts of you, your wrath not experiencing that for an eternity, but experiencing your love and your grace and your goodness and your kindness and your mercy. We thank you so much for Jesus making that possible, for his blood, for his death, for his obedience, for his life, his resurrection, everything you've done. Lord, we praise you for everything you've done this morning. just want to say thank you this morning. We praise in his name. I cannot comprehend. 
agonies of Calvary. You, the perfect Holy One, crushed your Son. Drink the bitter cup reserved for me. And your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. By your birth. Sacrifice I've been brought near. Let me be your friend. Pouring out the riches of your glorious grace. Curse and your kindness. Seated at your table. 
Praise team. We appreciate that this morning. And like I said last week, we appreciate all those that labor among us. And um, I was thinking initially about this morning, I tried to put myself in your shoes, being one who sitting there every week. And, you know, you, you take some time to go through a book and, and, um, I hope it's appreciated uh, on your part that um, I'm really trying to dig as deep as I can to uncover there for us what we need. In the book of Second Peter, um, Peter talks to these believers about the whole growth element in their life and the need to grow. And we looked at that in the first chapter. And all that is based on standing on the more sure word of God, right? And that's what we have in front of us. That's what we have in front of us in our homes. We have, how many copies do you have of God's word in your home, right? We stand on the more sure prophetic word of God. That is what we stand on, and we can stand on. And I trust that um, as you are journeying through your Christian life, that you're not trying to look for a replacement. You're not trying to find more revelation. We have all we need here in God's Word. Do you believe that? Everything that you need. Peter says in the first chapter, everything needed for life and godliness, we have it. Right? We have that in front of us. And and as we know, guys, let's be honest with each other, right? As we know, it's that everyday battle to grow, right? It is an everyday battle. There are so many things that take up our time and our energy and our space. And just to have a few moments to be able to say, Lord, I need to reflect on you this morning. What is it, Lord, that you want me to learn about who you are? What is it that you want me to do in order that I might grow or have opportunities to share your gospel with others? And so as we come through the first chapter, um, Peter is saying the apostles, right, are standing on the more sure word of God. And we come to chapter 2, and he begins to talk about these guys that aren't doing that. (laughs) They aren't standing on the sure word of God. In fact, They are exploiting people through false words, right? And so we began to look at that, and we covered a good bit of verses 1 through 3 as we looked at together at the fact that false teachers will enter. Their presence is certain. We looked at the fact that um, their entrance is subtle. They come alongside of us, may not even recognize them to begin with. They're just among us. Um, And then we looked at the fact that their message was destructive. It is destructive, but what we're going to see is not only was their message destructive in terms of the hearers, those who heard, but they will themselves be destroyed. And Peter talks about that, and in the weeks to come, we'll see that. Their destruction is inevitable. It's coming. Um, There is accountability, and this is important for you to understand. There is accountability with what is said about God. There's accountability. So if you're speaking on behalf, right, of the Lord, and you begin to teach, you're held accountable for that. I'm held accountable for that. And the Bible tells us that teachers incur a stricter judgment. So 
Next time, next time someone asks you to teach, pray about that. Pray about that. Because standing up in front of an audience of five or a hundred, it doesn't matter. We're accountable when we open God's word. And so, you have the apostles standing on the more sure word, and then you have, in chapter 2, this description of these false teachers. And we come to the middle of verse 1, and there's a phrase there. And I said last week that, you know, you can kind of look at the phrase and focus on one part of the phrase or the other. And um, I'm just one of those that says, let's look at both of them. Right? I, I just believe you don't skip it. Right? It may be difficult to explain, may not come away with a full or complete understanding, but let's not skip it. Can we agree on that? And so, in the middle of the verse, as he's describing these false teachers, he says, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. I have it on the screen for you. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. And here is the phrase we started dealing with last week, even denying, it should say denying, the master who bought them. And so we said, well, how are they denying the master? How did they continually deny the master? And we said last week that the focus seems to be uh, more on their morality than their theology. That doesn't mean they had a right theology. It just means that Peter's emphasizing the way they're living, which is really, when you think about it, that's a great way to approach it because if there is one thing the church needs to consider, it's the way that we're living. How are we representing Christ? And we saw that they continually denied the master uh, through their habitual lying. They were liars. They exploited with false words. We saw that in verse 3. But on the other hand, the believers to do what? Speak truth. We're to be truth tellers. And then we see that they were characterized as loose in their living. Um, verse 14 tells us they have eyes full of adultery. In other words, every time they're looking at a woman, they have a sexually immoral thought. <laughs> we said, well... Um, on the other hand, believers need to be holy in all their behavior. 1 Peter chapter 1. As obedient children, be holy in all your behavior. That's the idea of 1 Peter chapter 1. And then we said, another example from the text is they're greedy. They have a heart trained in greed. Um, this describes a continual state of greed. They just have this continual desire for more and more and more and more, more accumulation, more wealth, more possessions. Gee whiz, we live in that world today. Right? It's almost like you look at this and go, well, that was written then. This is, man, it is so applicable today. On the other hand, believers should be content. Right? We should be givers, not only of ourselves, um, but as I'm learning, I'm taking this class, and it's on stewardship. And do you know, and I knew this before, but when I heard it again this week in my class, I was like, that's right. I'm a steward of what's been given to me. Who owns it all? The Lord does. The Lord owns it all. I'm the steward, so I'm responsible for the time that the Lord gives me on earth. You ever thought about that? We think about stewardship, we think about money, Right? And that's certainly a big part of it. But, but stewards of time, I think that could really preach in a culture today that is 
just seems to be like wasting so much time. You ever gone through, through a week and thought, man, I sure wish I would have spent more time in the Word. Not even a week, let's say a day. I think about how many things in my life have I done that, hey, in and of themselves aren't necessarily bad, but they're taking me away from the best thing. The best thing. Well, so as believers in Christ, we should be opposite of those things. There's two more I wanted to give to you as examples. You know, what Peter does is verses 10 through 22, he really digs into the characteristics of these guys. But I thought it'd be good to kind of define how they denied the master before we got to some of that. And so I'm just kind of wetting your appetite for that. But I want to give you two more. Two more ways. Um, they had a problem with authority. Uh, verse 10 says they despise authority. Despise authority. That word authority is an interesting term. If you looked it up, do you know we get the word curios from that word authority? Do you know what curios is? How many of you know? Raise your hand. We'll say it. Curios means... Curios means Lord. Somebody said it. Curios means Lord. Doesn't mean curious. <laughs> you might be curious, but curios does not mean curious. It means Lord. And so when Peter uses this term authority, it's the word curiates in the Greek, from which we get the word curios meaning Lord. So they had a problem with authority. Ultimately, they had a problem with the authority of who? The Lord. In fact, shaking their fist, he is not my authority. He's not the sovereign one in my life. He's not the ruler in my life. Now, I wonder how many Christians today, when it comes to the life of sanctification, the issue of sanctification, have taken their fist and said, Lord, you're not ruling this area in my life. Can that happen with a believer? Answer, yes. And it does. And the Lord corrects us, right? Because that's what our Father does. He corrects those that are His children. He disciplines those that He loves. They had a problem with authority. Jude verse 8 says they reject authority. It means this by definition, to look down on authority, to have contempt for someone who is in authority. On the other hand, the Lord has given clear instruction concerning authority, has he not? In relationship to government, what are we to do? Class, submit. What are we to do? To pray. When it comes to the church, is there authority structure in the church? Answer, yes. Without authority, there's chaos. Remember that. Without authority, there's chaos. And in the church, you know what's happening in the church today? One of the ways that that is manifesting itself where authority is being challenged is in the pulpit. You say, that? what are you talking about? There are women that are pastoring churches. Now, does God speak to that? Question. Yes, he does. He does speak to that. In fact, I'm glad you asked that. He does speak to that. 
Think about this before I go to this text. Think about if you laid down 10 rules for your kids and you said, I expect you to follow all 10 of them. And one of your children says to you, well, hey, mom, dad, I like eight of them, but mm, the other two I'm not real crazy about. So let's negotiate. Now, when I was growing up, that never worked. If dad gave us 10 laws, they were laws, period. Nowadays, I feel like there's negotiation going on. Um, But my point is this, that God has laid down for the church authority structure. He's given it to us. It's not something that we have to guess at. One of the ways I believe that authority is being diminished is in pulpits today where women are pastoring churches. And um, I look at it and I say, well, let's just look at what God says. So 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, go there real quickly with me. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 9. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as befits women making a claim to godliness. Um, I'll have to preach that sometime. Verse 11, let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, Paul says, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. What did he just say? I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now I want you to understand, first of all, that women are very valuable in the ministry. Right? Some of you are thinking, that, why in the world are you even going there? Are you crazy? No, I'm not crazy. Women are very valuable in the ministry. They have their place in the ministry. One of my assignments in school, boy, I, I used to have that paper. I need to find that. That paper, it was entitled The, the Women, Women's Role in the Church. <laughs> There's no telling what I wrote. But the reality of it is that women do have a role in the church. They absolutely do. I mean, have you considered Romans 16? Do you know who is in Romans chapter 16. Her name is Phoebe, one of my favorites in Scripture. Phoebe was a servant of the church at Rome, right? If you look at Paul's list, as he lists those who were involved in ministry with him, there are women in the list. Why? Because women are very important in ministry. So I don't want anyone to walk out saying, Thad said women aren't important in ministry. That is not true. If somebody tells you that, that's a lie. Women are very important to the ministry. In fact, Titus, in in, uh, Paul's letter to Titus chapter uh, 1, he talks about, right? He talks about the the older women doing what? Teaching the younger women. There is a role. There's a responsibility. Um, And it's very important that women, right, are not degraded and say, oh, well, we can't use women. That's not true. Right? Women need to know that they're valuable, 
that they can minister in the church. But it seems to me that the Apostle Paul draws a line in the sand. And the line in the sand is they are not to exercise authority over men. That's the way God established it to be. So do you know what we need in the church, women? Strong leadership. That's what we need. We need it in the home and we need it in the church. We need men who are willing to lead their homes just like B said earlier. And we need men in the church who are going to be leaders. There's some confusion out in our church today, out in the church today, about this particular issue. And you have women who are Bible teachers, and a lot of them are really good Bible teachers. And, and, and you look out in the audience, and it's a mixed audience. You know, what does God think about that? Is that important? Answer, yes, it's important. So these false teachers had a problem with authority. But without authority, there's chaos. The fifth example I wanted to give you is that these um, false teachers were self-willed. We get the word hedonism from this Greek word, or from this word, which says this. Self-willed says that moral value is determined by pursuing pleasure or happiness. <laughs> That's our culture. Our culture is pursuing pleasure and happiness. But um, at the end of that road, that means this. Listen to this. At the end of that road, that means there's no authority... There are no boundaries, meaning there's out-of-control living, right? And that's what was going on with these false teachers. They were living out of control. You know what it reminded me of? Spring break. I mean, I know you're laughing, but it did. Any of you ever seen any documentaries on the spring breaks and all these different beaches these college kids go to? A lot of them are college kids. Some may be high school kids. And you talk about out-of-control living, there it is. I mean, no boundaries. It's all about being happy. Now, I wish I could look at every young person in the eye and say, look, that happiness is momentary. You make that decision, that decision is for the rest of your life. It has impact. Young people, listen to me. Every decision you make, Right, I, I always kind of draw a line in the sand between 17 and 22 or 23 years old. You're going to make decisions that will impact the rest of your life. And so I thought, wow, as I look at this particular word, self-willed, that describes these false teachers. But it describes our culture, doesn't it? Um, hedonism, by definition, is the teaching or doctrine that pleasure or happiness is the chief good in life. Guys, listen, those of us who are older, we know pleasure and happiness is momentary. You know what's lasting? Joy. Joy is lasting. And it's the attitude that I can be joyful in all things. There was a couple of, um, in contrast to being self-willed and finding pleasure or happiness in, in the, what the world has, um, my mind was immediately taken to Psalm 42 and Psalm 63 because this, is, this ought to be the attitude or the mind of the believer, right? Where the world offers temporary happiness, right? God offers something a whole lot more, and it's better. As the deer, the psalmist says, pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God. 
for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? You see what the psalmist says? My soul pants for thee. Have you ever just, I guess I just food analogies always come to my mind, but it's just one of those things, it's just such a good illustration. You, you, get, you ever had on your mind a Milo burger? Not till just now, right? But sometimes we want that burger so bad. I mean, our mouth is just watering. I don't know if it happens to you. It happens to me. I could be sitting in my living room going, oh my goodness, and my mouth just starts salivating. And you know what? I can't help it. I mean, I'm just older now, so I don't even fight the battle. I just go. Man, and look what he's saying about God. My soul pants for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God. You guys, just for the sake of illustration, it doesn't say my soul pants for anyone but God. And he's the one that can satisfy. The world has a different message. These false teachers had a different message. Then Psalm 63, David says, O God, thou art my God. I shall seek thee earnestly. I I underscore those prepositional phrases, or excuse me, the uh, personal pronouns. My God, I shall seek thee earnestly. My soul thirsts for thee. My flesh yearns for thee. What's he doing? He's giving personal testimony as to his relationship. It's his relationship with God. What would you write on a three-by-five card? Right? What does your soul thirst for? Well, those are some examples of, of the fact that these guys continually denied the master. But then it says, who bought them? And we want to deal with that phrase for just a few minutes this morning. They were bought. They were bought is what it says. Notice the middle of verse 1. Even denying the master, who bought them? All right? The word bought means to buy in a marketplace. It's the term agorazo. It means to buy in a marketplace. The picture is of a marketplace where goods were sold and where goods were purchased. It's also an image that um, comes to mind as one of a slave who was bought and who was sold, right? So as you look at the phrase, uh, who bought them, who is the who? Who does who refer to? The master. You don't have to guess at that. The master. Who bought them? So who are the them? Who are the them? The false teachers. So the master bought the false teachers. So you look at it and you go, hey, hold on a second. I mean, these guys are, I mean, they're certainly not evidencing the fact that they belong to the master. In fact, the chapter would say that they don't. So what in the world does this mean? Um, The questions that need to come to mind are two. I don't know which question you might like best, but I've come up with two questions. How were the false teachers redeemed or bought? Or in what way were the false teachers redeemed or bought? Um, After much, much reading, I thought John Walford did the best job in describing this term bought. 
The false teachers were redeemed or bought in the sense that Christ paid the redemption price for their salvation. Or as some would say, the opportunity to be saved. Yet as indicated in the text, they continually rejected him and obviously weren't a part of the church. So this brings a discussion, um, a significant doctrine that um, if you'll just hang with me for about 10 minutes, a significant doctrine in the church, which is limited atonement versus unlimited atonement. Did Christ die for all men? That's the question that comes up, and if you went and read any um, commentary, you're going to find this is a long discussion. There's a man um, named Ron Rhodes who has a ministry called Reasoning from the Scriptures. And in an article on limited, ato- limited atonement versus unlimited atonement, um, he makes some comments that I think that are very crucial for our understanding. So just so you're on the same page with me, the question here for us to consider is, did Christ die for all men or not? That's the question. And that's what is raised in chapter 2, verse 1 of this passage. Let me just give you a definition of limited atonement. Limited atonement is a reference to the view that Christ's atoning death was only for the elect. Right? That Christ's atoning death was only for the elect. And there are passages that are used. I'm going to give you a few just to, so you'll have them. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. I'm not going to read all of them right now. Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28. Um, this one is used a lot by those who believe in a limited atonement. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I know those of us who espouse to the view of unlimited atonement are uncomfortable when talking about this. I'm one of those because I believe in unlimited atonement, but we can't deny the fact that there's the other side of the bridge, right? Um, John 10, 15 is another passage they use, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Um, John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends, And there are arguments that are set forth in terms of limited atonement, and the list is long. I would encourage you, if you wanted to, to go to this particular website. It's Reasoning from the Scripture Ministries, and download the article. And here's the title of the article, The Extent of the Atonement. (laughs) Once you get that's all you have to type in, I promise. Limited atonement versus unlimited atonement. And you're going to pull it up, and you're going to read it, and there's a long argument that's set forth here between limited atonement and unlimited atonement. Um, The limited atonement guys say the Bible says Christ died for a specific group of people, being the church, his people, his sheep. Um, And then there's the other view, which is the one that Grace Community Church holds to and the one that I personally hold to, and that is unlimited atonement. Unlimited atonement. Let me give you, I have a definition for that here. Unlimited atonement says Christ died for everyone, even for those that will reject him. Uh, Unlimited atonement is a reference to the doctrine that Christ's redemptive death 
was for all persons. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Um, there are a couple other verses I wanted to give you here. One is First uh, Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Look what it says. For there is one God and one mediator, also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for who? For all. The testimony born at the proper time. This, this verse here, or these verses, I'm like, I'm not sure with what limited atonement guys do with this. I, I don't know. I, um, I guess I didn't read far enough in the article. Uh, John says, my little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father who is Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation. Now that's a long word. Do you know what that word means? Satisfaction. Right? Write it down if you didn't know it. The word propitiation means satisfaction. He himself, who is Christ is the satisfaction for our sins. Underscore that personal pronoun, our. Who's he talking about? Well, at least the apostles and everyone who belongs to Christ. But then it says, not only for ours only, right? He could have stopped with for our sins, but he doesn't. He says, not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. John chapter 1, verse 29. You know the passage, it says, The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who does what? Can you say that a little louder? Who takes away what? Okay. Well, J.C. Ryle wrote this. Christ is a Savior for all mankind. He did not suffer for a few persons only, but for all mankind. What Christ took away and bore on the cross was not the sin of certain people only, but the whole accumulated mass of all the sins of all the children of Adam. And I, I was so encouraged that Joe read what he did this morning. I hold as strongly as anyone that Christ's death is profitable. Now this is important to hear. That Christ's death is profitable to none but the elect who believe in his name. But I dare not, I love the humility with which he writes, but I dare not limit and pare down such expressions as the one before us. I dare not confine the intention of redemption to the saints alone. Christ is for every man. In fact, the Bible tells us he desires what? That all men come to the knowledge of the truth. The atonement was made for all the world though it is applied and enjoyed by none but believers, which is true. Are you enjoying the fact that Christ atoned for your sins? <laughs> I hope so. Well, that's a limited discussion, but that is a huge doctrine out there today that has been discussed for years and years. I personally believe that Christ died for all. That's what the scriptures, I believe, teach. Well, so it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on, I guess, in one sense, because I ask the question, so what now? If you believe in limited atonement, does that 
X out the responsibility to share Christ? No, it doesn't. Because I want to tell you something. You're not going to find people walking down the streets with big old E's on the front of their chest. You're not going to find that. Here's the question I have for guys that believe in limits atonement. I just wonder about this question. Can you sit in front of someone and say to them that Christ loved them so much? Or would you be reserved in that because you're like, I don't know if that person, if Christ died for that person or not. Right? So the Bible says that Christ died for all. Well, the responsibility is to share the gospel of Christ. And it's interesting, in these two particular sections, the Lord told his disciples to do what? He said, go to everybody. Right? Go to all of them. Look in the Matthew 28, 29. Go and make disciples of all nations. Down in Acts 1, 8. You will be my witnesses. And that word witnesses, by the way, is the word martyr. You're going to be my martyrs in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Man, how would you have received that? <laughs> right, if you're one of those guys. Man, we follow the Lord and we, we've seen his resurrection. He says, hey, you're going to go be my martyrs. But you know what? If you've been called out by the Lord this morning and you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, you know we've all been called out to be martyrs for Christ. We don't know what's around the corner. Well, a few weeks ago, we were in Awana. And it was such a special time with these boys. We have, I think they're third, fourth, fifth, and sixth, or fourth, fifth, and sixth. They're one of those. Um, I think it's third. Third, fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. It is. They're shaking their heads. It is. So we have these wonderful little cherubs in front of us. Right? And, and I just, I, I remember going in that night, and, and the Lord just took that meeting over and, and myself and another couple of the leaders, we began sharing the gospel with those kids. You know why we did it? Because we, were, we are convinced that Christ died for them. We are convinced that Christ loves them. That's why the message didn't stop. We didn't say, hey, I don't know if Christ loves you. Hey, you don't have an E on your chest. What we said was God demonstrated his love toward us. He did that. How did he do that? Christ died on the cross for us. And so we gave that message to those children. So I ask you this question this morning. If you're a believer in Christ, do you look the part? Are you described differently in your life than these false teachers? I'll share this story with you. There's a story about a man, and he was in traffic. And it reminded me of some people that I know personally. Um, and he's behind this lady. And she's in the right lane, and um, the traffic on the left is just going by. Now he did nothing. And he's sitting behind this lady, and she's on her phone, and she's putting her makeup on. And he's got these bumper stickers on the back of his car. Honk if you love Jesus. Jesus saves. Jesus is coming. And so he's waiting for a few moments and he begins to get agitated. Any of you ever had that happen to you? And he, so he rolls down the window and he starts shaking his fist. Get out of the way. Get out of the way. 
Finally, the traffic clears enough where he can pass on the left side, and sure enough, right behind him were these lights. And he pulls him over, the policeman does, and he says, Sir, I need to see your driver's license and your registration. And so he shows him his driver's license and his registration. The man looked at the cop and he said, Sir, can I ask you a question? Why did you pull me over? And he said, Well, I thought the car was stolen. Did he get it or did he need to tell it again? Hey, guys, people are watching our lives. Are our lives indicative of being followers of Christ? Let's pray together. Lord, we want to thank you for this morning and thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you that your word is the authority for us, for life and for godliness. And Lord, our desire, I, I pray as believers is to honor you in everything that we do. And Lord, this morning, um, we want to transition to a time where we remember your death for us, what you did on the cross at Calvary. Ultimately, Lord, the greatest agony was when you were separated from your Father and you cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Well, we look at the cross and we think of suffering, and, but we also think of accomplishment. What, the, what, what was accomplished at the cross at Calvary the sin debt was paid in full. Um, and we thank you for that. And so this morning as we remember your death, I pray that you would help us to examine ourselves. First of all, to see if we're in the faith. And if we are in the faith, Lord, if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, that this would truly be a time of celebration for us as we consider what our Savior and Lord Jesus did for us at Calvary. And all these things we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.